thank you. Grab that. So our new podium, if you heard last week, you, you will have noticed our fancy new podium uh, is in the shop this week. We're going to get that baby a paint job. Um, so, yeah, a little color, sinking black, still going with black. Um, that announcement lady, she's so hot. <laughs> it's, my, it's my wife. <laughs> Don't worry. <sighs> Happy Easter. Or Resurrection Sunday, if you prefer. Uh, or April, April Fool's Day. There's that as well. I'm very, very tempted to just start with the April Fool's shenanigans, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist, see how far we get. Um, you know, I, I actually proposed to my wife, Shirley, um, you just met, on April Fool's Day. Well, just, just before we get to the word, okay, a little tip for any young men thinking about proposing to a special someone at any point in the future. April Fool's Day. Just in case she says no, you can be like, April Fool's Day, as if. <laughs> so mine said yes, so it was, it was all good. <laughs> 10 years now, over 10 years. It's been good. Um, guys, uh, I want to pray for the kids. That's what I want to do before we get too much further. Um, I, I do believe they're going to be making their way across the street to the park. Um, at some point this morning for a bit of an egg hunt. Um, but they're also going to be hearing a, a teaching Bible story about Jesus and the resurrection. Um, guys, these kids, their hearts are, they're just soft, they're open. They ask the most significant questions about God and about life. Um, it's easy to forget about them because they're downstairs and out of sight. But let, let's pray for them, shall we? Father, I pray that you bless these little ones. Lord Jesus, you said that uh, your kingdom belongs to, such, to ones such as these, these, these little children. I pray that this morning, uh, the Easter would be so much more um, than just candy and finding eggs for them. I pray that they would have fun, that it would be a blast for them. But Lord Jesus, I pray that you would also be, be the hero of the story that they would experience your love and your resurrection power in a way that makes sense to them, for their little worlds, and all that they're thinking about. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so guys, welcome. If, if you're uh, from an out of town, a family member just visiting, it's so wonderful. It's always uh, just a pleasure to see kind of who's gone out of town, who's in town, and it's just a big family um, affair. But if you are new, new-ish, just dropping in this morning, um, this, this is, we, we, we've quite deliberately not gone over the top to do something sensational or hypey. We're just, I reckon Jesus is just as alive this week as he was last week or the next week to come. So we're just going to focus on that fact and continue being his people and following him. And, and in that light, uh, we're actually going to continue uh, through a sermon series, a study that we've been doing for the past several weeks that we've entitled Unlikely Church. And basically, it's a, it's a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, most of you uh, probably know, because you've only heard me say it like 100 times now, but 
the church in Corinth, that ancient first century church in that ancient city of Corinth was arguably the most unlikely church to have actually survived the first century. Because if you read the letter written by the Apostle Paul to these Christians in this ancient city of Corinth, you're like, my God, how did they ever survive? Um, And it it was because of God, because of God's faithfulness and his grace that in fact, uh, the church in Corinth not only survived, but they thrived and they became who God called them to be. And that's our story as well, which is why we're studying the book. Anyways, we're going to jump right into it this morning. And we tried really hard to actually synchronize our series uh, through 1 Corinthians so that 1 Corinthians 15 would, would land right on Easter. We missed it by two weeks. So we're actually going to back up a little bit. If you've been tracking with us, you may have noticed that we just completely skipped over the resurrection. No, we didn't. We've come back to it this morning. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to open it now, you can grab one in the aisle. There's, there's some, some Bibles on loan there. But we're going to jump into right, right into Unlikely Church, part 27, Resurrection. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're actually going to put some, of, uh, some text up on the slide here. So just a little context here. We're, we're almost to the end of the letter, and Paul, he's been helping the, the followers of Jesus in Corinth understand what is the essence of following Jesus. What does it mean to be a community built around the person of Jesus who died and resurrected from the dead? And he's, he's worked through several implications, very practical implications of what life is meant to look like in the light of Jesus, all that he said, did, and accomplished on the cross. And even now as he's living and leading his church in Corinth and today. But he gets to this point in chapter 15 where he, he, he takes a big step back and he sort of summarizes the essence of the gospel. Like this is the point of it all. This is where it all stems from. So whatever you act like, Whatever your traditions might be, whatever your morality might look like, it's all going to stem from here. So this is what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised after three days, all in accordance with with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Peter and the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Pretty big crowd. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's so random. So that was either the Holy Spirit coming or going. Um, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive or would have been alive in in first century AD. Uh, Though some have fallen asleep. Typo. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and the other apostles, and then last of all, he appeared also to me. 
Paul is going to great lengths to emphasize the reality that Jesus not only died for our sins, he not only suffered on a cross, he was not only buried in the ground, but he came back from the dead. He says, Peter and the disciples saw it, uh, up to five, a crowd of 500 people, that's a, that's a decent sized crowd, give or take, probably, but up to 500 people witnessed this. And he says, and if you don't believe me, you probably know a few of these people because most of them are still alive. This actually happened. And then, of course, he appeared to James, who at this point in time would have been the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, the other apostles, and then last of all, he appeared also to me. It happened. He goes on to say in verse 12, 13, 14, he he, he, he sort of makes this rhetorical question. He says, so then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This was a big question. They're way over in Greece. Okay, this happened in the ancient Near East, Asia, Jerusalem. That's, these Greeks, they're like, did it actually happen? We've heard the rumors. We've even got some friends who claim they were there. But I don't know, it seems, it seems unimaginable back from the dead? He says, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, that's this question, what are we doing here? What are we actually doing here? If Jesus, who several times in his life, in his earthly ministry, explicitly described to his followers the fact that he was going to be betrayed, arrested, handed over to the authorities, tortured, crucified, buried, and yet come back from the dead. I mean, he couldn't have made it any more plain. And Paul's saying, if that didn't actually happen, what are we doing here? If it turns out that this alleged Messiah was a liar, or maybe at best case scenario, just utterly delusional, then what does that say about us? He goes on in verse 19 to say, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, that is if Jesus didn't actually conquer the grave, we of all people are to be pitied the most. That is to say, even if Jesus had done everything else, even, let's say, the miracles, healing, eyes open, deaf hearing, lame walking, uh, the teaching, Sermon on the Mount, the parables, social initiative uh, projects, feeding the poor, standing up for the oppressed, even his, given his exemplary life, if all of that were actually true, and I think most people even these days are happy to at least admit that. Excuse me. Just bear with me. Yeah. 
So let's say Jesus did all of that. Paul's still emphasizing the point that if he didn't rise from the dead, then everything else was just, well, it's all been done before. There's been plenty of religious movements, spiritual gurus, moral teachings, but Jesus, he claimed to be something more, someone else, and he evidenced that reality by overcoming death. This is what Josh McDowell refers to as evidence demands a verdict. The man came back to life. He didn't lie. He wasn't delusional. Something undeniable happened. And we call that the resurrection of Christ. He says, if it turns out that if it was all a farce, then we of all people should be pitied the most. But in verse 20, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, which means for all of us who belong to Christ, like Jesus, we too will experience new life. What does that mean? This is the big question. So that's the buildup. It's a reality. If you, if you want to know this Jesus, you've got to deal with that fact. So what are the implications of resurrection life? This is one of the great promises to anyone who would follow, trust in, become like Jesus. What are the implications of resurrection life? What are, and this is like core to the Christian faith, but what does it mean? What are the implications of new life? You know, I was, um, I was asked at least a dozen times this week, uh, are you ready? Are you ready? You know, I've got friends, they know I'm a pastor, and they look me in the eye, really serious moment, are you ready for this Sunday? And after like half a dozen times, I start to feel like, I must, am I ready? <laughs> am I forgetting something? I bought the flowers, I got extra donuts. I got a buddy down in Milwaukee who passes the church. They rent a helicopter every year and drop like a thousand eggs, like plastic eggs, <laughs> from the sky. Which I guess is super cool if you've got a helicopter hookup. Are you ready? For what exactly? What? what uh. And then, of course, you know, as as the pastor, it's like this is this is like, I mean, this is like the Super Bowl of like the, the pastor's world, like <laughs> Christmas and Easter, like don't screw it up. I mean, I have people. God bless you all. People before the service shake my hand. Good luck. Like, <laughs> my gosh, I'm gonna. This is too much. I'm not that good. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, you, and you probably ask yourself, well, ready for what? Ready for what? Here we are. We're all dressed up. I got my tie on. What are we preparing for? What are we to expect as we celebrate and look forward to resurrection life? The implications of that. I want to, I want to present a few, a few ways to view this. Two ways that I think are 
problematic that you might actually relate to. And then I want to offer you a third that I think is, 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 is the vision that we need to truly have when we consider new life. Resurrection. What it's not. Number one, it's not a way out. Resurrection is not a way out. It's not an escape for the soul. It's not some kind of uh, cosmic abandonment. We're not on a sinking ship and Jesus is not our life raft. It's not, let's get the out of here because it's all going down. You know, my kids, um, they, they've been doing this for a while, but they, have, uh, they do what they call heaven talk. They've got this idea, um, they've heard about heaven, they think about heaven. To them, heaven is this place where they get to go to someday where there's unlimited Legos, unlimited iPads. You can create anything you can possibly dream up. And they'll have these conversations. Occasionally, I'll catch them. One of them will grab the other and say, hey, let's go to the bedroom and have heaven talk, which is their, their way of saying, let's just, let's just go dream of what it's going to be like someday when we go to heaven. And their whole paradigm is that this life is all right, but the whole like iPad limitation situation is really not working out. So they dream about this place that they can escape to where everything will be just right. I remember hearing about a little boy just downstairs and we prayed for our kids. There's a reason for that. I heard the story a few weeks or a few months ago. Um, one of the little boys, uh, this was one of the Kid City teachers told me this. They were talking about heaven. They're talking about what life will look like after we die. I, I don't know how how that even came up. We're talking about like seven-year-olds. And one of the little boys, he said, uh, you could tell, they were talking about heaven and he was contemplating this concept of heaven, this place where we go after we die. And apparently he was, just, he was, he was wrestling with it, he was processing it, and then finally his hand shot up and the teacher said, yeah, go ahead. So what you're telling me is that when we die, we go to Mars. <laughs> that was as best as he could do to make sense out of the concept of heaven. Why Mars? I don't know. But in his little seven-year-old brain, he thought heaven is a place where we, where we get to escape to. It's in outer space, someplace, obviously, and, and we'll leave here and go there. I would contend that that's not quite it because God has no intention of abandoning his creation project. In the beginning when God created the world, he called it good. In fact, he called it good six times. He created and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. He created humanity, he said, very good. And then it all went terribly wrong. But from the very beginning, even at the fall, God was determined, committed to restore creation to what he had always intended it to become. And that is good. 
In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm 72, 19, that God plans on filling the whole earth with his glory. And Jesus, Jesus himself never abandoned his own body. You know, if you read the early creeds, the the church fathers were very deliberate to emphasize that ours will be a bodily resurrection, just like Christ. He didn't just evacuate the shell of his physical body so that he could, he could live some sort of ethereal existence in heaven someplace. Resurrection included his very physical body. It was transformed, to be sure, resurrection life, new life, it includes all of creation, even the universe itself. So it's not a way out. Number two, a resurrection is, it's not a way up. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. It's not this way of thinking that's sort of like next level spirituality, a sort of spiritual self-help methodology or what some theologians have referred to as uh, an evolutionary optimism. This idea that, that everything's just slowly getting better. And if we could just convert more people to good Christian morals, then it's all just gonna be all right. That my primary role as a Christian is to fix planet Earth and everyone around me. And that somehow the resurrection is meant to like demarcate this this next step in, in things improving, things simply getting better, sort of this renovation of humanity, this uh, this fixer upper, if you will. It's it's a bit like it's a bit like just plugging the hole in the dam. You remember that old cartoon? I don't know if it was Donald Duck or who it was, but the, the dam is cracking and one, one little leak springs out and he sticks his finger in it and then another hole opens up and another leak springs out and he sticks his toe in it and the next thing you know, another one, and the next thing you know, he's got all 10 fingers and all 10 toes and he tries to stick his nose in the next one and eventually the whole thing just comes crumbling down because the dam just won't hold. And sometimes I think that we can make the mistake of viewing the Christian life as a means of just fixing the world around us. But in the resurrection, we see something much more substantial than that. Because Jesus died. The dam broke, and he was put in the ground. And then he came back to life. The resurrection of Christ is more than just God's fixer-upper project. It is complete recreation of everything, of all of life. God, he seems determined not to merely beckon us up, but rather to bring his eternal kingdom down. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. 
Heavenly Father, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, all throughout scriptures, anytime we come to the part where it seems like humanity is going to sort of work their way up, they're going to build a tower. They're going to construct a temple. They're going to they're do something somehow just through sheer moral, willful effort. We're going to ascend unto the mountain of God. We're going we're gonna to work our way up to God. And yet inevitably, every time, it all comes crumbling down. That's a sort of spiritual pessimism. Or you could view it as an evolutionary optimism. We're just trying to get better. The only problem with that is, well, number one, I don't know that that's necessarily God's vision for our lives. And number two, how's that working out for you? I mean, we've been at it for, I don't know, how many thousands of years have we been around? Education, technology, medicine, oh, it's good. It's all very, very good. But guys, we're still dropping bombs. The last time I checked, racism was still a very, very real thing in our world. People are still dying. The kids are still being abandoned. Marriages are still falling apart. Guys, no matter how well we advance, no matter how good we get, we need something greater than good old American know-how. We need new life. Which brings us to point number three. Resurrection. A way of living in present hope. Let me read to you what Peter wrote in his first epistle. He says in the very opening of his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ doesn't merely beckon us up and it doesn't merely give us a way out. It is the power to live and endure in hope right here, right now. It's the revelation that empowers us to deal with reality, to not give in to sort of a pessimistic despair, thinking all that there's left to do is just abandon ship, get out, build a spaceship, and head for Mars, nor does it just simply give us the right to, to think that somehow we're going to fix it all. The ship has got holes, it's sinking, it's going down. I've only got 10 fingers and 10 toes. I need more if we're gonna see this thing become what God had intended it to be at the very outset. It is the life-changing realization that our God, our Heavenly Father, is the master of redemption. It is the revelation that running away isn't the answer, nor simply working harder 
going to turn everything around. The resurrection calls us to remain present and keep giving all that we have in this life, knowing that our God specializes in taking dying, broken people and all of our impossible circumstances and making them into something unimaginably beautiful and utterly unexpected. The resurrection is a way of hope. I believe that that God is is wanting to to say something very directly to us this morning. As I was worshiping, I I felt like the Holy Spirit put this on my heart. I felt like the Lord is saying, be still and know that I am God. The resurrection allows us to stand still and endure in hope between Friday and Sunday. When it feels like, look, I've done everything that I can think to do. (laughs) I tried to run. I tried to stay. I tried to work it out. I tried to run again. There's got to be something else. The resurrection of Christ is the word of God that says, be still and wait. Wait. Hope. In the face of pain, hope. When it feels like your marriage has got nothing left, hope. When your debt is looming like Everest, hope. When nothing makes sense, be still and hope. When depression has become your normal, hope. When it feels like death would be a much better option than your quote-unquote life, Because our Father in heaven is the master of redemption. He takes what's broken, what looks dead and lifeless, and breathes new life into what the world has written off as hopeless. This is resurrection life. We are the people of hope. We are part of a movement of hope. We stand in hope. We wait in hope. We pray in hope. We proclaim God's faithfulness in hope. Even in the face of death itself, we hope. We don't deny reality. We don't try to run from it. We stand, we endure, we wait, we believe God, and we hope because Jesus is alive. He came back from the the grave He overcame death. It's the unthinkable. It's what Tolkien referred to as the eucatastrophe. Euc as in from like the Eucharist, the good presence of God, catastrophe. It's the good, shocking, unthinkable, unexpected surprise. It's where God shows up in the middle of that thing you could have never have imagined turning around and God says, watch what I do best. Watch me raise that dead thing back up. 
Guys, if you've ever thought about following Jesus, if that interests you, this is what you're signing up for. To be a part of the family of hope. And when you've hoped with all the hope you can muster and you've got no hope left, let us hope on your behalf. When you've got nothing left, we'll hope for you. Because we are the people of undying hope. Looking to the one who played death like a pawn, who by dying for us, made new life available to us all. Can I invite the band to come up now? Is that the right time? It is. It's an Easter miracle. As we're going to take just the next few minutes of our time together this morning, responding as we always do. We're going to sing together um, in worship, and then we're going to have a moment to take communion. So much of what I tried to articulate this morning is truly one of the great mysteries of life. hard to merely put into words this unthinkable thing that that God accomplished in Christ. This hope that that transcends some good inspirational speech uh, better than any philosophy, well-reasoned argument for why you ought to feel a certain way or have a certain perspective on life. This hope, this new life that it begins right here, someplace in the gut, in the heart. It's something to be experienced. I said this at our pre-service meeting this morning. Um, just wanting to remind everyone that was here serving, volunteering, that truly our faith is an experiential faith. When the disciples witnessed the living Christ, when they saw him alive, body and all, wounds, he ate, they had no paradigm for what that was. There was no category for it. They, they knew something of resurrection but whenever it was talked about, it was, it was thought of as this like, thing that would happen someday, once upon a time. And yet there he was, their Messiah, their King, alive. And it was beyond words. It took, it took a couple hundred years for theologians to, to actually be able to articulate what that was. Those disciples... They began to experience a hope 
that goes beyond all words, all emotions. Guys, that's what I want for us as a church family. That's what I want for you in your life, your circumstances, your challenges, your money, your lack thereof, your relationships, your sickness, your child. I hope that doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of logical sense, but that is realer than anything you've experienced so far in this life. Can we stand together? Let me pray for us and we'll worship. Lord Jesus, you are our great risen king. In you, we have hope. Because not only did you die for our sins, but you rose again to give us new life. You made a way that we might be reconnected with the very source of all life. And I pray that this morning, even as Easter truly does mark a very significant moment in our lives, that this hope that you've promised us would become a greater reality for every one of us, for all of our lives. Pray that you would teach us to be still, teach us to pray, teach us to trust you in ways that this hope is a reality. In the midst of our pain, our questions, our uncertainties, our wonderings, teach us to be still, to be present in this hope, this living hope that you want to pour inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. He is alive. My wife, uh, Shirley, she felt very strongly uh, to share this out of Isaiah 61. It says that for those who would hope in him, that he would grant to those who mourn beautiful garments instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And I believe that God would say to us today, be still and hope in God. Don't run. Don't try to be God. Be still and know that he is alive. If you have prayer requests, needs, this message of hope is more than just 
friendly Easter reminder for you, but perhaps it's, it's very real and very necessary for where you're at in life. Um, please don't leave here without letting either myself or one of our leaders pray for you. Um, there'll be a few of us just sort of milling about up front here. This is where we come to find hope. We don't leave here simply with some more things to think about. We meet with our God who's alive and who's present here now. Guys, I hope you have a wonderful Easter Sunday. I'm eager to see how the kids' uh, egg hunt went. Yay for chocolate. I love you guys. If you need prayer, stick around. Otherwise, enjoy your family. See you around.